Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this series, Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially interested in China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. With me today is Amish Shah, who leads R.A. Riem, a diamond and fine jewelry company that was started four generations ago by his family in India. R.A. Riem Group serves distributors and retail stores on four continents, dealing with components and labor forces in multiple places around the world. I have found his observations about doing business in China truly fascinating. One of the things Amish has said to me is that most Westerners really have no idea what's happening in China. I sometimes feel bad that I wish people could see China the way I have seen it. People could connect with people. I think people on the Western world a lot of times believe in what they see on TV or small documentaries or what they read. I think they still don't know what is the real heart. It's like how, you know, somebody comes to New York for a week and that's the impression of America. You'll hear Amish explain how his company's approach to doing business in China has changed dramatically in response to the growing appetite among Chinese for diamonds and other fine goods. So let's get started. Welcome to 360 Conversation Podcasts and this Asia and the West series, Amish. Thank you, Susan. Uh, look, um, it's an honor uh, to be on the uh, conversation. Uh, well, I think this is going to be interesting. When, when, we, when we talk of the conversations that are taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? Actually, it means everything to our business. Hmm. How so? Uh, we're in a product that is, uh, when we talk about fine jewelry, I'm sure most people realize that the components that were used, which is diamonds, gold, and labor, are actually sourced and put together by different parts of the world, uh, from the artisans in India and China, uh, from the mining people in Africa, Canada, Russia. We put together this, whereby the mine diamonds that are from Russia, Canada, are brought in and cut by the artisans, are then further mounted in fine jewelry designed by the Asians, then further brought into America for distribution. So for our business, Asia is probably the most important element uh, creating the product itself. So you've now spent two decades beating a path back and forth between Asia and the West. Has uh, the has the dialogue shifted at all during that time? Are there are there different ways that people in both areas of the world are viewing each other? Absolutely. I think the change, the most positive change I can say that have has come over this period is the viewpoint between both the nation, both the parts of the world. Uh, if I would say there was a time when you looked from the East and you saw the West that the West, all they were interested in is to source cheap labor. 
While from the West, all they looked at is, okay, this is a part of the world that is third world, and let's try to source as cheap as we can. They know what they're doing in manufacturing. And the other part was, oh, maybe they can't produce fine quality. It's cheap labor, cheap product. What has changed over a period is a lot of respect for each other. The Asians understand that there is a lot of marketing possibilities in the West and they come up with great ideas. The West understands that a lot of high quality product can be produced with high quality material in Asia. Also the relationship that we had with our suppliers and today where we have our own units has completely changed. You are much more on a level playing field, talking much more comfortably and with a lot of trust. This was something that I've seen that when I started was much harder than it is today. More difficult in the sense that there was not that established level of trust. Absolutely. So do you, what is the difference between the business that you do in China and elsewhere in Asia? Uh, for us, actually, China is, while many t today uh, say that China is not growing at the speed it was and there is issues, we see China as an extremely lucrative market when we, uh, for the products we have, we just contracted with the largest uh, jewelry e-com in China last year for their first patented diamond in the marketplace. And the speed that which they have grown only in about four months of actually the product hitting the marketplace is surprising to the company themselves that I can put it this way, that in the third month, I got invited by the CEO to come in and have tea because he's like the speed that this is picking up. We are looking, this is the marketing we're going to do because we are signing a 10 year contract of supply with them. So that's how I see, I see China as a growing very fast and very strongly growing middle-class market. But what everybody needs to know is you have to know what the Chinese consumer needs, how to relate to them and how to build the right product at the right price point for them. So this has come a long way from where you and many other companies started when you saw China as a source for goods that you sold elsewhere. Now, you, now you're seeing it, I guess you're saying, as a market that you're selling into and with a special expertise that you have about the Chinese consumer. Absolutely. We are, uh, when 10 years ago we uh, stepped into the country, all I was thinking is how do I source from here? which led to us building a unit and which today in a few years later, like a few years ago, we are in a scenario whereby we're looking like, how do we grow into this country, understanding the culture more and connecting with the people that as we are talking, and I'm gonna be in Hong Kong a week from today, we're in the process of again, tying up with another major player in the country with another special cut and launching one stone, which I can say here, is the most brilliant heart-shaped diamond, which the Chinese and the Asians love, in the marketplace in the next four to six months under that brand. Oh, that's so much, that's so exciting. Now, I remember when we last talked, which was some time ago, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time in small towns in China where the factories are with whom you do business. Yes. So that And that your Chinese partners were responding to the Chinese government's efforts to guide Chinese businesses out of low playing, 
low paying businesses into much more high quality product production. It sounds like that indeed is working well. Is that correct? Yes, actually, you can see that change. If you are somebody who has traveled to China the last 10 years, not in the only, when I take off the four major cities, the Beijings and the Shenzhen and that, and when you go to the next tier, you can see that the businesses that have, that have opted out of getting out of low paying jobs and moved into better, have actually better uh, paid their employees better who are living a much better life. And the best example is the family that we're affiliated with, that in the last 18 months, all jobs that would be done for very price point jobs are completely shut down. And that unit was actually refurbished and he's making for two major American designer companies that are sold at way more premium even than better end products. So the entire business changed and those employees are making about 30% more than what they made two years ago. So that scenario is not really well understood in the West, is it? Do you think that the the average Westerner, not not in your business, but people on the street, they don't they don't understand this about China. Do you think? They don't. I sometimes feel bad that I wish people could see China the way I have seen it. People could connect with people. I think people on the Western world a lot of times believe in what they see on TV or small documentaries or what they read. I think they still don't know what is the real heart. It's like how, you know, somebody comes to New York for a week and that's the impression of America. Well, I believe America is very different when you leave New York. Yeah, that, that's that's just so true. The um, One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, though, was innovation. Some say that innovation is understood differently in China from the way people consider it in the West. Can you comment on that? Innovation uh, in the West is seeing about how do you create new product and build value. When you go to a country like China, what happens is we have to keep in mind that the country has transitioned uh, from communism and a very low paying scenario. So when they see innovation, they always try to relate it to how it's going to bring change to their lives. While we talk about innovation, we're looking at it from a, sometimes a lot more from a luxury point of view, that what's new, what can I get? They look at it a lot from how it's going to improve their basic life. So the viewpoint of an average Chinese person living in China in a small town to what innovation is, is different than how it's America. Of course, the, the second point is also they're a little more receptive and it's also about affordability. So it has to relate to their everyday life when we talk about innovation. So can you give me an example of that when you say here it's about how can how can I get the newest, the best, the fastest, and there it's how can I improve my life? Just give me an example of that. So um, if I would say even with, let's take a phone, and uh, while you think here, you know, we're looking for the best phone or the best computer, and as such, pushing for like, okay, this is the newest thing in the market. It costs $800, $1,000, and let me get there. Well, if you're in China and you're somebody who's working in a unit, when you look at a computer or a phone, your first thing is, what does this phone do for me? And can I afford it? Oh, while a person in US will say, you know what, maybe I'll take a $700 phone, pay $20 a month. The person in China is gonna say, you know what? For this $300 phone, they will look at the ad for the $700 phone, but say, this $300 phone is gonna do 80% of what 
I can, I need to do, or I can get in that expensive phone and I will, it'll only cost me X dollars because the rest of the money I can use for other purposes. That is very important. So if innovation itself is really important to China, where will it come from? Where do you see the real source of innovation there? I think innovation in China is important, but where what is very crucial is understanding the consumer. Even during our last conversation uh, a while ago, the, one of the most important things I'd said is the companies that are successful, including ourselves who are now feeling that yes, we have made it, we're getting into the market. The first and most important thing that took everybody time to learn is you need to understand the culture of the people. You need to understand how they relate to it. And when I was giving you the phone example, the best example I'll give you, one of the five best handheld phones today, when it comes to benchmarking, are made in China for the Chinese people. Like there's two companies, and I don't want to name them here, but they do fantastic in China. Well, they actually have specs that benchmark. But these phones, why are they doing fantastic? Because they relate to the people there. The technology, it's not that there is no technology, there are very, very smart people there. But the people that are very smart there have taken those ideas and connected it with the way the life is there. They built that $300 phone. They took everything that the person in China needs and made it a priority as a part of the package that they offer. Similarly, this is what will importantly innovate because innovation in China has to relate to practical part of life in Asia. Now, does that differ at all from innovation in, say, India? India and China, I think it will, I will say about 60 to 70% would be the same. The only difference with India is that uh, because the country has been much more open, uh, connecting with the Western world, their acceptance of Western westernization is much more than China because China is still a lot more closed. So what happens is the desire to own a lot of foreign products is far higher. And also is, I think this is my feeling is the reach or the affordability of the consumers in India is far higher today than the people in China, the average uh, affordability. Ken, you, you mentioned that you were reluctant to name those two phones. Is there a reason for that? Uh, it's purely because it's on a conversation. One of them would be Xiaomi, and the other one is OnePlus One. I've heard about OnePlus One, right. They're fantastic. Can you cite examples of Chinese companies that you feel are highly innovative? We know about Tencent. We know about Alibaba. Anything else you'd point out to us, you'd say people should keep an eye on this. These people are doing something wonderful. I think maybe if I would name people from our industry, one of the very interesting names is Zokai. Um, they're based a little outside of Shenzhen, and they're innovating actually the fine jewelry industry in a complete new way, trying to bring in a connection with the consumer using technology, giving them a much more modern experience that the young Chinese consumer would like, along with the facilitated delivery that the traditional model offered. So that's what I see innovation, like an affordable innovation that connects with the consumer, gives them what they want, and uh, connects between tradition and future. How do you spell Zokai? Uh, Z-O-C-A-I. 
Terrific. Thanks. You had mentioned to me when we talked before a watch company that you thought was particularly innovative. I believe it was Hovan. Yeah. Hovan Watch Company, actually, uh, uh, that was actually my first experience in China, which was the best, the first good experience. And that changed my entire perspective. Uh, Mr. Lau's complete vision of uh, how he saw China and helped me understand uh, basically is one of the reasons I actually could then reconnect with the people that had built a business. Um, he, I'm sure he's even today doing fantastic business and supplies actually some of the real major uh, brands uh, sold globally in volume because those are the watches everybody can afford. Now, did you say that he went originally from, Hovan went from manufacturing just watches that were pretty standard to really having a very high-end aspect to their brand. Did I understand that correctly? More than high-end, I would say way more innovative uh, type watches. Interesting. So some say that Chinese have not much understanding of the concept of branding. Is that true? Absolutely not. They, the part that one needs to understand is the Chinese understand brands, and this is why a lot of Western brands actually have been way more successful in China than other countries in Asia is because the Chinese actually have a desire to own brands. If you look at the Chinese tourists that go out of China and travel in different countries, and you talk to the tour operators, because I work with some retailers in the United States in major cities, of how hard they work to lure the Chinese tourists into their branded stores, you'll be surprised the type of money they spend on these articles. Not only that, if you go to Hong Kong and there is a couple of small chains that cater 90% to Chinese people, you will be surprised what they sell that is 100% branded and what price they charge for it. The Chinese have a very strong desire to own brands. What they are a little weak in is building a brand. But I feel that there is only a little way ahead where they are starting to build. When you go to smaller places and you see small emerging brands, you see it like Xiaomi, OnePlus. And I talk a little bit technology because I love technology. And I follow these companies and how they started to how they built a name. So impressive. Now, you do business all over the Asia Pacific region, as I, as I understand it. What other countries do you find especially interesting right now? I think after China, you can't really compare because that's like an elephant in the room. But uh, we're looking at a couple of countries. We're looking to do some contracts, one in Malaysia, uh, Japan a little bit. But Vietnam to me means I always tell my brother and we're consistently watching very closely. Vietnam is basically an amazing uh, playground to develop a business. The reason being, if you will watch the manufacturing move in Asia, you know, manufacturing always moves globally every decade in a product. And if you actually go be, uh, 10, 20 years and you follow some products, how they moved into China and they've moved out into certain places, Vietnam has picked up a lot of manufacturing for the fabric garment industry, currently recently has been tapping into the diamond industry, finished garment industry in that middle class there is starting to make uh, basically is improving their lifestyle and their incomes 
So it sounds as if you're describing something that this is a matter of timing, that they're, they're now starting to be on the path that China is already traveling. Yes. Yeah, from, from um, cheap labor being the source of materials to a rising consumer class based on higher wages to exactly that happening now in Vietnam. Yes. And I see it, actually. If you will travel, you will see that slow change. Like if you went to Vietnam for five years in a row, I've been there a few times, but I see that. And also I'm projecting because if you studied, again, a few of the major corporations that didn't have offices there five years ago actually have offices there today. Where do you think the next places are? After Vietnam, uh, you know, other countries are usually smaller. In, if, you, if you're looking at Asia, they're smaller. Taiwan, Taipei, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, they're smaller. Thailand has always had a fantastic uh, potential, but because of its political instability, every couple of years, while things are just about to fall in place, uh, something goes wrong. So if a little more stability came into that country, I would see that as a great playground because the workforce is very good there. Educated and, and skilled. Skilled and also very hardworking. That labor force is very hardworking and they're a good consumer. But I, get, I guess uh, all I can say, making a non-political statement, is that they get driven uh, emotionally into situations that uh, disrupt business. How do you mean? No, means if you see each time, you know, the currency got devaluated, uh, and if you see the reasons you study behind, um, the concept of, you know, how communism used to be in the past, whereby, you know, the strikes and basically creating anything that disrupts business scares businesses. And if you, if, if somebody, it's not like I don't have an office in Bangkok. I do have an office in Bangkok and uh, we're basically a majority holder in a company that distributes all over bank in Thailand. But the biggest hurdle that we are always concerned in is that the investments in Thailand always feel them as high risk because of the foreign exchange. And what if uh, the way the country is set up, that something goes wrong there? You know, it's not like going into China where there's, even though people are concerned, we feel it's way more stable. So what about environmental concerns, especially in China? Is that something that uh, is, is a concern of yours? Does that affect or impact your business at all? I think it doesn't impact my business. And I know that this is uh, talked about a lot. Um, it is not an area of my knowledge as much. But as a layman, the way I've seen it, yes, of course, we see those pictures of the smoke in the sky and the cities and that. But I see sometimes I would put, the, put it this way. When you leave certain parts of the world and you go to any industrial countries, it is not the most unusual thing. It is a part of how things have been. When, you're, when you have certain type of industrial, uh, how do you say, a country that's growing. Now, can they and should they clean up? Yes, but that is not something for me to say. Mm. And they have a lot of issues on their hands, which are pretty impressive the way they're dealing with all of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, see, that's the part. Sometimes, you know, it's easy for us to sit across and comment on somebody's house, that what they need to fix in the house. 
But we fail to understand sometimes that there's a lot, they might, the priority for the people in the house has to run by what's more important to the people in the house. So well said. Now, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about uh, Westerners and their sometimes inaccurate view of, of Asians, especially the Chinese, uh, and, and how truly advanced they have become. What about in the other direction? What's the view of the Asians that, that you know, Chinese, all the other countries that you deal with? Do they have accurate pictures of the, of the West? I would say that uh, the pictures are always a little cloudy because not everybody gets to travel as much. So uh, I guess from the people I have met when we would talk about uh, Mr. Lau from Hovan, um, he's a global person and he understands the cultures globally. So it's easy when you talk to him, he sees it in a different way than many others. One of the senior companies actually from Hong Kong, TSL, uh, Mr. Tommy Lee, uh, we deal with them into some contract work uh, for special cuts. His entire viewpoint of America is very different, or the Western world is very different than most people. And what do I mean by that? For many who see the culture, understand that this is the Western culture. It's not that they, it's not necessary that they agree with everything that happens here, or how business is conducted here, or how people live their lives. But they accept it for what it is. But for a lot more people, they have no idea about how the Western world is. They are fantasized a lot by the Western world because it's the movies and everything they see. And for them, it's a lot more fantasy world than uh, what it is in real. Well, I think there's a lot of fantasy that goes in both directions. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see as we all become more educated how much we find we have in common. Uh, Amish, there, are there other issues that you'd like to mention regarding this East meets West and vice versa set of issues? Anything that comes to mind that you find particularly interesting? I think the most interesting one that I always have been focused on, which has helped us as a company, as a family, is uh, I feel that the understanding of the cultures uh, for the East about the West or for the West about the East is weak and if this was a lot more uh if there was much more communication and it's not one person's fault or one side of the world doesn't want to talk to the other it's just because of many political scenarios that they don't connect as much well certainly one of our one of our intentions here is to enlarge the conversations that are going on between the east and asia and i think uh your comments today have really been pretty enlightening. I thank you. It's been really a delight to share your perspectives. Thank you, Susan. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings. And the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V, 
360 podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.